This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. The field of neurobiology and the science of mindfulness reveal that the human brain is capable of being engaged in the experiences of upset, fear, anxiety, depression, while simultaneously observing and holding ourselves with kindness, as a loving parent or partner would. This ability to be both experiencing and holding the experience is the key to maintaining inner calm in the face of life's challenges. If we learn to honor that each and every inner voice, no matter how distressing, has the desire to help us, we open to the possibility that each part of us has value. This helps create a gentle, accepting, and warm resonance with ourselves that can help remain stable and present, even when parts of us feel upset. Valeria Tellis interviews Sarah Payton, the author of Your Resonant Self Workbook, From Self-Sabotage to Self-Care. Sarah Payton, certified trainer of nonviolent communication and neuroscience educator, integrates brain science and the use of resonant language to heal personal and collective trauma with exquisite gentleness. Sarah is a sought-after expert who brings neuroscience expertise together with depth work, self-compassion, and the transformative potential of language. She works with audiences internationally to create a compassionate understanding of the effects of relational trauma on the brain and teaches people how words change and heal us. Sarah teaches and lectures internationally and is the author of three books, Your Resonant Self, Guided Meditations and Exercises to Engage Your Brain's Capacity for Healing, The Companion, Your Resonant Self Workbook, From Self-Sabotage to Self-Care, and Affirmations for Turbulent Times, Resonant Words to Soothe Body and Mind, scheduled for release in winter 2021. Meet Sarah at sarahpayton.com. Here is the interview with Sarah Payton. In your own words, who is Sarah Payton? Oh, um, uh, I am a person who has found her way through the experience of living with a brain that was not kind to me. My brain was not a good place to live. And gradually through this discovery of the way that we can leverage the understandings of relational neuroscience and really understand brains and how they work, I started to develop more and more compassion for myself. And it it became really compelling to begin to share that information with people and with with the world. And so um, I'm a person who has discovered a particular way to move into making the brain a very good place to live and uh, a person who loves to share about it. Would you say that this is uh, the purpose of your life at this time? Would you call it a purpose? Yeah, absolutely. 
And when it comes to the purpose, individual purposes, it seems like we all have different ones, unique ways of navigating this reality. In general, Sarah, what do you feel is the purpose of the human experience as a whole? The purpose of the human experience? Wow, I don't think I actually hold an idea that there is a purpose for our human experience. I would like to have enough time to change everybody's brains enough that we could come into a true relationship with our planet and and save our ecosystems. I just want another 200 years. I want to stop the, the, the world crisis clock for 200 years and let everybody sink into having their brains be good places to live and then see what we would make of this beautiful world. What is your understanding and idea of joy? What does it feel like? Oh, I, I love joy. And what I love about joy is is not that we're supposed to end up in some sort of extended bliss state that we never leave, but rather that it gets to be like a bright thread woven through the tapestry of our lives that occurs regularly and that shows up to kind of lighten the, lighten the load of what we're all dealing with so that no matter how hard things are, there are still these funny moments of sweetness and delight mm. and love for each other and enjoyment of one another that just break through kind of like, maybe it's, maybe I see it as the sun, you know, breaking mm. through the, a partially cloudy day that it's kind of always there and it surfaces whenever it gets a chance to. So from your perspective, it sounds like joy is not a destination. It is a birthright. It's innate. It's within us because it feels like that. Yeah. It comes in and goes, right, Sarah? It doesn't really... I mean, it could stay. It seems to me like it could. It could be the foundation yeah. for yeah, this exactly. existence. Yeah, if we think of that metaphor of it as the sun... And everything else that's happening, you know, there's n nighttime that stops us from seeing the sun. There's clouds that stop us from seeing the sun. Or I think about moonlight for some reason. Yeah. I, I love that reflection, too. The soft reflection of sunlight. Yeah. Right, right. So do you see a difference between happiness and joy, the state of happiness? I do see a difference. I see uh, happiness as being less relational, less tinged with awe, yeah. less tinged mm -hmm. with delight. It's sort of a simpler thing for me than joy is. It's a kind of like a la 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 la. <laughs> True. <laughs> Where, yeah. Whereas joy is like, mm. um, <laughs> yeah, softer, deeper, perhaps more subtle. Mm -hmm. to um, healing. What is healing to you? And what are some of the misconceptions we have about healing, Sarah? Yeah, so healing for me is the is this movement towards making the brain a good place to live. The cool thing about brains is that they are complex systems. And as soon as we figure out what's blocking them from moving more and more deeply into their own complexity, then they sort of start to emerge uh, in very unexpected ways. So healing for me includes kind of taming intrusive memories that come with post-traumatic stress, but healing also includes the surprise emergences of creativity, of dreams, of um, of creative works, of, of desi new desires to learn, 
So, um, uh, for example, I was very surprised. I turned 50. I was I was doing this work. I'm 59 now. And I, I turned 50. And I was like, I am 50 years old. Mm. I'm going to play the cello. <laughs> Why not? Right. And I, I had never played the cello in my life. Yeah. I'd never thought it was even <clears throat> possible for me to play the cello. But the, but that's an example of healing. I have been taking lessons for nine years, and I love it. Do you also include the component of spirituality to healing? Well, well spirituality to me feels like another birthright of the brain. Right. Like you use the word innate, which is such a beautiful word. And I believe that spirituality is innate to our human brains. And it's another thing that begins to emerge just as joy and play and creativity uh, and surprise come. So does a deeper and deeper connection to a very individualized sense of spiritual connection that's different for every person. You know, some people it's more life energy, some people it's more the divine, some people it's nature. It varies, right? Mm -hmm. For you, what would that be? My sense of uh, of spirituality is, is twofold. One is a connection with a sense of the life in everything and it being sacred. And the second is sort of a, a political byproduct of that, which is the movement toward what Martin Luther King called beloved community, which is kind of loving the heck out of everybody, no matter, no matter how silly we find their political views. <laughs> do you find that to be realistic somehow, that we can do that as humans? I think for little moments we catch it. I think it's another one of those, you know, it's a bit like joy and spirituality. It's a bit. It's a bit like, you know, we catch. It's it, the, these are kind of flavors. I think, of the divine that that we, the flavors of life energy itself that we that we catch for little moments. And uh, let me see. I do have a few more warm up questions for you. Yeah, let me ask you this one. What do you love most about being in a human body? It's <laughs> <laughs> a fun question to me. <laughs> Um, what I love most about being in a human body is the way that it starts to feel really yummy as our brain becomes more and more our own rather than ruled by trauma or ruled by our parents' traumas or past generations' traumas, that there's a, that there's a softness and a pleasure and an enjoyment that comes with embodiment. And my last warm-up question is about freedom. What is your idea of freedom? What is to be free? Well, my idea about freedom is is very much connected with what I was saying about brains and complex systems. My idea about freedom is that we mostly um, are in our humanness, in living in a world that doesn't have a lot of resonant support in it for us, that we tend to compensate for the lack of accompaniment by making what I call unconscious contracts. And this is, of course, the subject of my latest book, which is called the Your Resonant Self Workbook. And um, and the it, it takes you through a whole series of questions and exercises to begin to notice the ways that you have agreements with yourself to stop yourself from actually being here now. And my experience of freedom is that when we let go of enough of these contracts and we start to be in a spontaneous dance of relationality with the world and life and the people around us, 
that then we're starting to really experience freedom. Before I ask you more questions now, the second section about your book, that word resonance, how do you describe that? It's not understanding, is it? I didn't look in the dictionary, actually. But what is yes. the meaning of that? I use that word well, a lot, actually. Yeah, you know? it kind of comes from music. So, you know, the, the experience of, of harmonic resonance and of, of the ways that, that, that different notes and tones of music kind of vibrate together. And if you have, for example, two cellos, mm. I love the cello because, of yeah. course, that's been yeah. my passion, my yeah. surprise passion of mm. my middle age. Um, if you have two cellos and you're playing on one and you put your ear very close to the other, you can hear that it is vibrating along with the cello that's being played, that it is resonating in response to the music that's being played on the other cello. And I have this sense of our human bodies that that even, you know, you and I in this moment, you know, separated uh, and only connected via um, via electronic means and, and also our connection with our audience is one where we're creating resonance and responding to each other. We're responding to each other's vocal tone, the words we use. We're responding to each other's timing and our audience is responding with us and we're creating resonant, a resonant field of shared attention. And when we bring our shared our attention to the music that life is playing on another human, then we start to be in a state of resonance. And when we say to the other human, do I understand you? And they nod or smile or they say yes, then we know that we're beginning to catch some of the music that life is playing on them and reflect it to them. And that's, for me, the resonant state is where there's more than one person, and they're saying yes to each other. With language or non-verbal or without language? Yeah, both. Right. Yes, absolutely. With touch, with, mm, with vocal yeah. tone, with the words we use, with facial expression, with gesture. So, as you mentioned earlier, you wrote the book, Your Resonant Self Workbook, From Self-Sabotage to Self-Care. What was the main intention of writing this book? The main intention of this of writing this book was to explore unconscious contracts, to begin to get a sense of how can we put our arms around these agreements that we make with ourselves, really not to feel, not to be in the present time, not to trust, not to love, not to know the hugeness of our own hearts. How can we begin to name them with words so that people can work through them and begin to release them? That was why I wrote the book. And I always say the word, use the word beautiful too. When I see other human beings trying to help in themselves first, doing the work of healing and then passing that on, trying to help others. It's the most beautiful thing that I can think of. So thank you, Sarah, again. You are a trainer of nonviolent communication. So when I saw that too, that title, I found to be very interesting because I never heard that before. Never heard, uh, not yet. You're the first guest that I interview uh, with this title. So how did you become a trainer of nonviolent communication and how does it work? I know you have been talking about already in a way. I became a train. I, be I discovered nonviolent communication by picking up a CD set that was created by 
the fellow who's the founder of nonviolent communication, a man named Marshall Rosenberg, who's no longer alive, but who was alive at that time. And I, I just, uh, he, what he was talking about was the way in which we are all connected by our longings and our needs, that we think we're different from others, but that's just at the strategy level. That at the level of universal human needs, at these flavors, the level of these flavors of life energy, we are deeply connected and that we are more often more deeply connected than we know. And he spoke a lot about the importance of naming what our feelings were and naming what our needs were. He was working before relational neuroscience really flowered. And it almost seems to me like he was kind of a walking relational neuroscientist really understood things about the brain that hadn't been named before. And my experience with it was that um, I was having a lot of trouble hugging my son. Um, and I, and I just felt so much shame and felt like it was, it it was very, uh, stuck and like it was never going to change. And I was at a Marshall Rosenberg workshop and started working on this and people were just, instead of telling me to see it differently or what I supposed, what I was supposed to do, they were guessing like, what were my feelings and needs? Mm -hmm. And as they guessed, I had this sudden experience of of a spontaneous memory of trauma, a memory of being about three years old and reaching out to hug my mom and feeling her Mm -hmm. body recoil. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, although at that time I didn't have any words for these unconscious contracts, I made a contract with myself not to reach, not to hug, because it was too painful to Mm -hmm. have someone else recoil from my touch. Now, my mom's Recoil was totally based on trauma. She was, she loved me and wanted to hug me, but her body didn't know how to be safe with other bodies. So the release of that then, let me hug my son with, <laughs> with great deal of joy and delight. And here it comes back to these first questions that you asked about joy and freedom. We, we, can, we can move once we release the contract. I didn't know I was releasing a contract, but the spontaneous understanding just unlocked that door for me and released that contract. So that, and that's why I became a trainer of nonviolent communication, because it was the first thing that I stumbled across that changed my brain and started to make it a good place to live. And I wonder more often than that, why some of us have this curiosity or this sincere desire to heal and to change, and some of us never do. Mm. Do you also wonder why? Well, uh, yes, I do wonder. I do think some element of it is like what we came in with, like some kind of gift from the ancestors or gift from the divine that, that gives our soul that longing. But I also think that people get blocked by unconscious contracts. And if they have enough of them, then it creates a a terrible kind of bottleneck of life energy that doesn't get to go anywhere because it all has to turn around and kind of chase its own tail. It can't be expressed because it was too dangerous when we were little to be able to express that life energy and that love. And and I believe that the, the, the natural state of the human heart is quite a loving state, quite a huge desire to contribute and connect. And that when people don't have that desire, they've been 
kind of emotionally battered and or not necessarily battered, but simply, you know, held at arm's length. If we've been held at arm's length all our life, then we create a kind of a nervous system insulation that stops us from even knowing ourselves. Yeah, and it actually muffles the response of the human nervous system. It's a kind of a, a, a movement, a natural movement that children experience when they're being held at arm's length, particularly when children are not picked up when they cry. Yeah. Or when their joy is not encouraged and extended. Is that possible in this case, if we see people around us, like family members, in this particular situation of going circles, can we somehow help them? Or, or is it just a helpless situation? It kind of depends on how open they are. You know, I think that um, that starting to talk about contracts that we make with ourselves if someone is open to that, you know, can be very helpful and that we can all do it with each other. We can say to each other, I wonder if you have an agreement not to succeed so that you're, so that you don't become m more successful than your father was. Sometimes I wonder that we could say to each other. And I think, it, you know, I think it's okay to say that. Of course, if we're in a domestic violence situation uh, and it's dangerous to speak, then we wouldn't want to, you know, we, need to make sure that we're doing what most serves us in terms of survival and safety. And also sometimes people can be cruel or cutting or dismissive or contemptuous. And then, of course, it's less interesting to have those conversations <laughs> with yes. someone who's cruel or cutting or dismissive <laughs> or contemptuous. Yeah, I love this suggestion about openness. Yeah, if we, and it seems like we need to have um, a certain level of wisdom to know that when somebody's open or not open, or maybe that connection with ourselves, the self-awareness to know them, which a lot of times for me, it gets overridden by the desire to change others so and to ease suffering. So I yes. just say it anyway, <laughs> but yeah. it never works, but I do it. I say it. In that case, I know there are people like myself. We are so eager to change and the outside world and see a better place that we want to force that change somehow. Yes, yes. Which never works. <laughs> no. So talk to me about the types of resonant language, feelings and needs, body sensations, uh, fresh metaphors, um, and some others. But before that, Sarah, what is the difference between feelings and emotions? Mm. I don't have a big distinction between feelings and emotions. Some people do. I just tend to use those words interchangeably. So feelings and needs would also be emotions and longings or emotions and loves or emotions and desires. And, um, and that comes very much from Marshall Rosenberg's work with nonviolent communication. What I did when I started, when I had this transformative experience that I told you about, and I was so surprised. I remember walking out of the building going, I can hug my son. What yeah. the heck just happened? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and I, yeah. as I am a very curious person, I got, on, I got onto the internet. It was 2001. And I got onto the internet and I was like, okay, what the heck happened? <laughs> and it, yeah. I just happened to find the, some of the early research that was coming out of the world of relational neuroscience, where scientists were seeing the ways that relationship changes our brain. Ah, what a pleasure that we get to change each other's brains with relationship. 
And so that was where my journey really began was like, oh my goodness, what? Okay. If feelings and needs change your brain, are there any other kinds of language that change your brain? And I discovered that there were, that the kinds of language that really awaken the right hemisphere speech centers allow for body connection and allow things to shift. We're entering a different world when we enter the world of resonance. We're entering a world where we get to vibrate together and do what human brains are supposed to do, which is to understand each other with warmth and precision. So um, I discovered different research, <coughs> excuse me, that includes, um, as you said, when we talk about body sensations, it, it wakes up the right hemisphere. When we use a fresh metaphor, uh, as opposed to stale metaphor, it lights up the right hemisphere. So um, if I were to say, oh, I had such a lovely conversation with Valeria, and um, it was like, uh, it was like the, the smooth, smooth brook water running over sun-warmed stones. Then that like is a fresh metaphor. You, you and I have never heard that metaphor before because I just made it up. And, and it, so it, it, light, it enlivens our right hemisphere. And if we use metaphor that's old and stale, it doesn't light anything up. It's like if I say that child is as good as gold. There's just no meaning. We've heard it so many times. So that's that's fresh metaphor. And then impossible dreams is the experience of instead of giving advice, making, you know, making guesses about what would be really fun and sweet instead of what's happening now. Like I remember one of my favorite ones was um, a mom uh, was talking about how hard it was to be stuck on the freeway and commuting with her two kids in the back seat fighting with each other. And the person who was listening to her suddenly said, would you love to have an eject button? <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and it just made the mom break into peals of laughter. I still remember. Yeah. Our oh, sense of humor. Wow. That is, I refer to that as, Light, like lightness, mm -hmm. playfulness, it just makes everything so much divine, if we can use that word. Yeah. Also, talk to me for a moment, Sarah, about the different kinds of contracts. Uh, in your book, you mentioned the contracts that cause anxiety and then also depression. Two, mm -hmm. I mean, they're two different aspects of the mental illness But yeah. that would be really helpful if you can talk to me for a moment about those two contracts, anxiety, depression. Sure. Depression is a little simpler than anxiety. It tends to be about um, moments where, where it really was not okay to exist. And so we begin to kind of notice what is our trauma history and what kind of agreements did we make with ourselves not to try not to breathe, not to exist, not to work, not to believe, not to believe in ourselves. And as we begin to release those contracts, the depression often begins to lift. Um, and of course, there's an entire chapter in this book and in the last book, both touching on different aspects of um, depression and ways to heal from depression. And the last book is the Your Resonant Self book. And this one is the Your Resonant Self workbook. Um, and then the, um, for anxiety, 
it's an interesting complexity because we use the word anxiety, but it doesn't, it tells us that our body is upset, but it doesn't actually tell us what emotions we're having, what feelings we're having. So as we start to study anxiety, what we learn is that the two main forms of anxiety can be about fear, but can also be about alarmed aloneness. So, um, so the experience of uh, being a little kid and losing our mom, that's alarmed aloneness. It's an alarm state and it's got like aspects of fear and anger, but it's not just fear and anger. It's like my mommy is missing. Something is very wrong. This person is gone. And then as we get older, you know, we experience it when there's heartbreak or when no one ever accompanies us or when we lose um, a partner to death or divorce or we lose a job or we lose a home. All of these things, or even, you know, now with global climate crisis, we're losing ecosystems and we can have a terrible alarmed aloneness. And all these things need to be named. And until they're named, they just stay in the body as kind of a, a, an amorphous anxiety that's always there. And, and this is something that I heard before, that depression is the uh, opposite of expression. Yeah. When it comes to depression. But then it seems like any form of contracted energy, which it sounds to me like all these kinds of um, sufferings we have at the mental, emotional level, they feel very contracted, suppressed. When I think about releasing them, I think about expansion and space and just mm-hmm. being one with life. Yeah. In a way, it's not having a life, but being life itself. What a wonderful closing. That brings us right back to, to freedom again. Yeah, freedom. Mm. Right, Sarah. Yes. And in your book, you say the ability to be both experiencing and holding the experience is the key to maintaining inner calm in the face of life's challenges. Mm-hmm. The ability to experience and to hold experience. When you use the word hold, what does it mean exactly? In this case, what would that mean? When we use the word hold in this particular case, we're referring to the ability to be with the emotion and experience it and have warmth for ourselves and a kind of an of course energy. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much, Valeria. Thank you, Sarah. I mean, I have so many other questions, <laughs> too many other questions for you. <laughs> Here um, in your book, there's a fascinating passage about moving parts of unconscious contracts. I have to go back to it and read that again. You talk about so many. You have a questionnaire, self-warmth, also guided meditation, uh, a sample of one-on-one uh, experience with you, what would that look like, and so much more. It's a uh, rich and generous work. Thank you so much again. Thank you so much. How do you define success these days? What is to be successful to you? Um, to, To be able to be with whatever our mission is, to let it flow through us with some degree of effortlessness and also uh, a sense that we're getting to, to live whatever our mission is. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself and life as of this moment? The hardest lesson to learn was um, how hard it is to both feel and be in relationship and to be responsive to others and to acknowledge impact without it destroying my self-worth. To understand that I too 
make mistakes and hurt people, mm-hmm. and that um, and that I that what is needed is not for me to go off and kill myself, but rather for me to be able to to listen and see if it's possible to make changes and to just continue to be in the relationship if the other person wants to be. Two more questions. If you knew you would die soon, meaning leaving, losing the body, would you make any change or do anything in a different way? I'd just call everybody up and tell them I love them. That sounds very good, right? And that's interesting because we don't know when that would happen, uh, that moment, right? So perhaps we should um, reflect on that more often and and do that every day, which I, I do try. And my last question is, what are three things about life you know for sure? Hmm. I know for sure that everybody's brain needs to be loved. I know for sure that when we think bad things about ourselves, it's not truth, it's trauma. Hmm. And I know for sure that we all need resonance and it would change our world. That's wonderful. I love that phrase. Thank you so much, Sarah, for the wisdom, the work you do, and everything else in between that could be felt. Thank you. Mm. Before we say goodbye, where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Uh, www.sarahpayton.com, P-E-Y-T-O-N, with a Sarah with an H and www.yourresonantself.com Thank you so much again and we'll talk soon. Thank you. Bye for now, Sarah. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Sarah Payton and her work, please visit sarahpayton.com To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.